And in this word that we have for the Lord today, it's a bit of an interstitial. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that word right. It's a, it's a gap sermon. And because Jeremy is preaching uh, this uh, next week, and so I did not want to start the controversy section of our Creed and Controversy series until, until afterwards so that we can do it consecutively. So what I, we had a gap, and in this gap, I took that as a divine mandate from the Lord to somehow try to make a meaningful bridge between the timeless creeds of doctrines, which we just went through, the glory of, you know, created in, in the image of God and, and what salvation means, justification by faith and sanctification and heaven and the final judgment, to make a meaningful bridge from these timeless parts of our creed and doctrine, these internal immovable truths, to what is most relevant for our contemporary society in 2010. These topics of controversy, homosexuality, abortion, and, and uh, war in the Middle East. And to somehow bring these together and to provide a wide enough platform to function as a conduit from these eternal truths to make meaningful and significant theologically these political and sociological economic realities that confront us. And so that's part of what I want to do today in, in just looking with you a little bit into the Word of God and the Gospels. And the other thing is that as we have already now underway into the Lenten season, I need somehow to prepare your souls for Easter. And so it's with these things in mind that I would ask that we go to the Lord together and to ask for His Spirit to be with us and to speak with us. We thank you, God, that there is no conflict between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. No conflict between the passion and the revelation that you give to us into our eyes and to our hearts by the ephemeral, the free, invisible, and mysterious working of the Spirit and the black and white, concrete words that we read on this page. That the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And it is by these means that you make clear your will, your nature, and your desire for us and for all humankind. We humbly then submit to you as we can open up this word, but we cannot force the Spirit to come. So we thank you that it is on the mercy and the grace given to us in the Son that we can so confidently ask for you to send your Spirit to open up our eyes and hearts and mouths and ears. For we say this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you about time. If you've ever had a sermon on time, it, this is a sermon on time. That's this very interesting thing that we struggle with, I think, constantly. It's part of the reason why I preach the way that I do. It, we just did a sermon on creeds and doctrines, and the technical theological seminary word for that is called systematic theology. It is theology, the knowledge of God, put into a system. And that system is coordinated, is arranged thematically. In other words, if you open... Grudem Systematic Theology, or a shorter 20 uh, beliefs, doctrines that all Christians should know. It's arranged by topic. In other words, uh, you know, the, the sin, the, the fall, the salvation, uh, the church, heaven. It's arranged on these thematic topics. And the reason why that I so infrequently preach along systematic theology lines is, is because there is a missing element when you kind of flatten it out that way and just go topic by topic. And that missing element is the element of time. And so I have always preached this way. And let me just jump back really quick. I, there is a need for systematic theology 
There is a need to break it up that way and slice it up and along topical lines. There is absolutely a need, and I think that we benefited from that in the, during the Creed series. But if you're tracking with me carefully along that Creed series when it was supposed to be systematic theology, I was actually preaching uh, time, biblical theology, just in systematic theology dress. I was still preaching along a time narrative. I began in the creation and the created reason why God made all things. And so I kind of began in Genesis and I ended up with Revelation and heaven and the final things. And so I still preached along a time axis because that time axis is incredibly important even as we deal with these eternal truths. What we have in this book of the Bible and God, the way that God revealed His Word to us is not a static arrangement of topics so that you can go to the Bible and you will not find in the Bible this is, uh, this is where, you know, uh, under Trinity and this is, you know, all indexed alphabetically and like all of our books and you can just kind of look back and say, okay, so this is where I'll find information about salvation and this is where I'll find information about heaven. It's not arranged that way. It's arranged along a chronology with the intent purpose that God has blessed time and that time is a good thing and that there is a place for me to be found in this book so that this story of Christ and the first people of God in Israel and then with the coming of Jesus, the new people of Israel called the church called Christians and then eventually in the second coming of Jesus Christ, and the completion of the kingdom of God, which he began in the first coming, I and you are part of that story, and God has meant for us to understand it as this unfolding story that he is creating over time. And time is this incredible thing which we all struggle with, and so I'm asking us to think Christianly about time. Time is this thing where we sometimes, it feels like that it is dragging on forever when we wish that we can speed it up. And sometimes time just flies and yet we wish we could just just hold on to this moment. At the very moments we wish we could hold on to this moment. And so that the Bible, because of this complexity of time, has two different words in the Greek mind when it thinks about time. One is chronos. Kronos, and the other is Kairos. And the nuances of those words are used fairly consistently. Kronos is metrical time, time that can be measured. It is the 2 o'clock, the 3 o'clock, it is the 9 to 5. And you have some degree of play within Kronos, meaning you can do in that 9 to 5, you can do your work speedily, you can do things faster in a hurried fashion, or you can do things slower. It is up to you how you use and dispense your time. That time is under your control, as it were, in a sense. Kairos is God's time. It is the sovereign authority by which he says that things move in accordance with the sequence which he has predetermined, where things have meaning, even if we are not aware of what they are, because things are moving in accordance with a time that he has blessed and made good. And therefore, that all time is meaningful time and important time and not ever to be wasted because it is something which God has blessed and said, this is a good thing. One of those old guys, British guys, Chesterton, Lewis, I have no idea who now. They just, I'm not even sure if it's one of those guys. I just think it sounds like them. 
said that, that time is God's way of making sure things don't all happen at once. That's chaos. So God allows things to move in a sequential ordering, which he calls time. And God's most important way that he has blessed time and let us know that time is not our enemy. Something for which we to say that I wish I were control and master of my time. I wish I could go back in time as I will or move time ahead as I desire because I don't like this. God is saying that this thing called time is under his control and his sovereign authority. And the fact that we know it's good is because Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, God himself, came and entered into our time and to part of it. I'll give you one of the most helpful insights for me as I think about time Christianly is my iPod and it's basically his music. I, I have this iPod touch which I fairly love actually as I do all Apple products. And this thing is to me somewhat almost a magical little device because why? It's because I used to have a CD collection and before that I used to have an <laughs> <laughs> I used to have a vinyl collection. Those of you, some of you, never even seen it. It's this thing, it's like a big CD, except for, you know, it's, uh, it's got this groove and a record, in which I bought, had my, and the thing, is, the thing is, the reason why I love the iPod so much is because my collection has grown. My records were really small when I was a kid, when we first got our first turntable. My record collection was five records. My dad had this big collection, Beethoven, Mozart, what have you. And then I had this small collection, and once I got KTEL's, Best top 40 hits with like Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive, and, and uh, some song by Queen, I think. I thought, okay, this is all I need. But So that was a very small collection. But then my CD collection was even bigger. And then now, on my iPod, I can have 3,000... This is my iPod collection. I have 3,166 songs in my iPod. And I can carry... Actually, I got it with me. There's 3,166 songs in there. I don't, it's no more a matter of, I can't, I gotta pick which CD I'm gonna, I'm gonna take along with me. And, I, and in the car, I'm shuffling through CDs. I got 3,000 plus songs in this thing. I can listen to them whatever I want. And the reason why we can do this is because some very intelligent person that probably went to MIT and thought, okay, you know, all we gotta do is we gotta just compress this. There's a compression technology by which a huge song file can be compressed down so it can, all these songs can be crammed into this little device. Now, there is going to be never, not ever, no matter how far technology gets, no matter how intelligent we become as a society, there will never, ever be compression technology that will allow you to listen to songs faster. Not only that, I mean, we can speed songs up but songs that will give you that same amount of enjoyment. So in other words, there's no song that's going to say like, okay, the other day I was, I was looking at one of my favorite Rachmaninoff concertos. So Rachmaninoff, the Rock 2 concerto is, 30, depending upon who plays it, 33 to 35 minutes long. There will never be compression technology that says, okay, this concerto is 33 to 35 minutes, but we're going to now squeeze it in so you can listen to it in 20. And then in next year, like, okay, all right, it's a 33-minute concerto. But you can listen to it in five minutes. You know, we can compress it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Even if you're waging, <laughs> you cannot, it's not the same. You can speed it up, even speed it up at pitch. It's not the same. Music imposes its own time on you. And once you get into music, you have got to allow it the time that it needs. You cannot... Listen to it faster. You cannot f- just take jump around in it and expect the same kind of enjoyment. 
And if some of you here have been wondering why, I used to love music when I was a kid. My gosh, it used to transport me and send me into worlds and send my imagination roaming. Music doesn't affect me that way anymore. The reason is because now time is not the same for you as it was when you were a child. Time was something you could surrender to. Somebody else making the rules for my time. And I surrender to the music. And I get lost in its world. To listen to music now as an adult, if you are not careful, you will find yourself almost by instinct wanting to impose and control that time in the same way that we desire to control and impose our control on everything that we do around us. And it is explanation for why that we have lost the enjoyment of most things, not just music. There is a secret in life called surrender that begins with the fear of the Lord. The psalmist and Proverbs tell us that, that wisdom begins with that fear of the Lord, that basic recognition that I am not God, meaning I am not the master of my time. And we get this all, and when I say that I want to prepare us for Easter, in four well, actually three different views upon Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, Easter, These in four different Gospels, we get three different views of them. And we've got to hold them all in our minds together simultaneously. If you've ever wondered why that we have four different Gospel accounts, which are basically giving us the same kind of material, it's because God means for us to have four different aspects four different angles in which to view this most important matter that has ever occurred. And if we do it without the aspect, that element of time, what we get is that we have a doctrinal, theological, topical examination of Good Friday, what Jesus did upon the cross. And then we get a topical, theological, thematic explanation of what happened during Easter Sunday in the resurrection, And we forget entirely that there was a time that was given by the Lord in those three days. So that it was not just a crucifixion and then a resurrection. Not even was it a crucifixion on Friday and then a Saturday resurrection. The scriptures and therefore God insist, demand, that we interpose an interval of time in between Good Friday and Resurrection Easter Sunday, which the church has called Holy Saturday, of which we know almost nothing. Why? Why not just make it from Good Friday and then bang, Easter Sunday? What is the meaning of this elongation, this stretching forth, so that between a Good Friday crucifixion and an Easter resurrection, God insists that the world waits to find out what happens in this holy Saturday. We find the answer to these things when we look at the four different Gospels that we have in the four different accounts. Because they preserve for us not a reduplication, not the same looking at these events, but through their different angles, they give us a full-orbed and a multi-dimensional image of what occurred between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, namely... That that Holy Saturday means that we would preserve both the uniqueness of Good Friday before the resurrection and resurrection only after a period of waiting after Good Friday. And what I mean by that is basically this. 
it is almost impossible for us to read the crucifixion accounts in the way that they were originally read and the way, in the way that the first disciples originally experienced the crucifixion on Good Friday as they, as they and, and the people were around them. And there in the three crosses with the two thieves at Golgotha, it's almost impossible for us to read that now because of this simple fact that we know how it ends. We know how it happens. We know what we know what happens at the end, and so this is. If you know me at all, I freak out when anybody is t- telling me about a movie that I have not yet seen. I freak out. I'm just like, no, no. And I'm so careful because as soon as you give me a hint of what if it, the way it's going to end, like, then my mind starts going into work, and then my that analytical mind, of, uh, which I sometimes wish I could just turn off as I'm watching the movie. I go like, oh, okay, that's what that guy meant by that. Oh, okay, so then I know how it's going to end. And the rest of the movie is just kind of okay. Well, I know now, and so you know, I, and some mo- some movies. I mean, you, you have to let the author tell the tale. You have to let the, the storyteller, the movie maker, do it and unfold it in his own time. Especially like un, the usual suspects. You really can't watch that movie twice. You know, you know what I mean? And you, you only know that if you've, if you've seen it. And if, you, if, and if you haven't seen it, don't let anybody tell you the ending before. It destroys the movie. And with the occurrence, the most central important occurrence of all time, what happens at the cross of Christ on a Good Friday, we move so quickly now in our telling and retelling so that we almost see Good Friday already swallowed up, inured, already kind of jaded by the fact, well, okay, I know how it's going to end. And what Holy Saturday preserves for us is each time a fresh retelling, an interposition, a divine interposition of time that God says, wait, don't just understand the crucifixion in light of the resurrection and jump to the end as if you cannot. Look at the crucifixion for what it is as it is on its own before we get to resurrection. So I'm going to do some incredibly quick Bible study with you all. And so if you would just open up your Bibles and if you want to turn to the end of Matthew or Mark, I'll say either one, either one. We'll just do an extremely quick bit of Bible study this afternoon. If you want to look to either go to Matthew and Mark, your preference, these two are the same in the angles at which they look at the cross. If you want to just go to the end of Matthew or Mark, whichever one you've chosen, you want to look at the last words, Jesus' final words on the cross. And it is, our English translations have made that exceedingly easy, exceedingly simple. All you have to do is, no, I don't think this is, uh, whatever you have. Does everybody here have a red letter edition? I imagine no matter what translation. All you got to do is look for the last words in red before your topic says, you know, before it says resurrection. Just look for the last words in red and look at what they are. You have them? Somebody want to just read them out for us real quick. What are the last words of Jesus according to Matthew and Mark? They are both the same. So the last words in red, the last words of Jesus before the resurrection. Does anyone just just shout it out for us? Okay, when I say it's a quick Bible study, that partly depends upon you guys. Okay. <laughs> or somebody just want to read that out. What are the last words of Jesus according to the Gospels of Matthew and Mark? Yes. And the words before then? 
I've talked about Aramaic a little bit, and honestly, to be honest with you, I don't know Aramaic, the use of Aramaic in the Gospels uh, enough to be confident about this. But this is my instinctual reading of Aramaic occurrences in the Gospels that we have. This, this much I know for sure. Greek is the language of the marketplace. It is the ma- language of scholarship at the time. It is the, the language of the formal citizenry of, of the Roman Empire. It is the formal elevated language of the land, Greek. Aramaic is a language of family. It's the homespun language. It's a language used at the home. It is why when I spoke last week and Jesus spoke to that little girl, Jairus' daughter, and said, Talitha, little girl, that's Aramaic, kum, arise. He's speaking to her in the homespun language of family. The most famous word that we have in Aramaic, that we all understand, that we all know, is part of our Christian consciousness, is the word Abba, spoken to us by Jesus, or spoken for us by Jesus. It is not pater, which is the Greek word, which means father. It's extremely formal. The word Abba is daddy. When I am in my most intimate conversations with my father, I revert to Korean because it's my first language of my heart. And I do so knowing that my Korean rots. My Korean is really bad. But when I'm speaking at my most intimate moments with my father and I need him to hear me in the language that is in his heart, most deeply buried, I speak in this homespun native language. In Matthew and Mark's accounting of the cross, Jesus is looking up at the blank heavens in a gray sky and he says these words in Aramaic, in the homespun language of family. And he says, Eloi, Eloi. This is the language of a son to a father as his father's son. Eloi, my God, my God. Lama sabachthani. How? Why? No one knew his theology better than the Son of God. No one. No one knew that God's faithfulness extends to the heavens and exceeds the constancy of majestic mountains. No one knows better than the Son of God that God is faithful. And there has become, at the moment of the cross, if we give it time before we go to the Easter resurrection, there is a moment of such desperate dereliction where his theology and his emotions have become schizophrenic and ripped apart so that even though that he knows in full confidence and does not sin, he knows the truth, he knows that God is faithful, he does not feel the faithfulness of God. And we miss this telling of the Gospels if we impose Easter Sunday automatically upon the cross as if to say that Jesus would have gone to the cross with this kind of stoic, superman, almighty capacity to just say, well, it's fine. It's no big deal. I believe that I just trust God. He's God's going God's to resurrect me. And in the reading of Mark and Matthew, this angle, this view that we get into the inner heart and life and mind of Jesus is that it was not on Jesus' mind in Matthew and Mark to think, uh, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. He felt absolutely abandoned by the Lord. He felt 
absolutely abandoned by the Lord. Holy Saturday preserves for us that reading in Matthew and Mark and preserves for me God's blessing and God's acceptance of me in my humanity and my finitude. And has made room, has made time for those moments in my life when though I know better, I know God loves me, yet I do not feel it. God has made and blessed and allowed Christ to join me and identify with me as a high priest in those times of my life when even though I know God is faithful, I am shaking in anxiety. This is the message from Mark and Matthew. And the thing is, is that so much in a hurry are we to get to Easter Sunday, and so much in a hurry are we, and so anxious to soften the blows of Matthew and Mark, and to read the resurrection back into Good Friday. I cannot stand the anxiety and the tension and the pain. So much of a hurry are we, that we try and blunt the sharp edges of the cross that ripped to shreds his body. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there are some interpretations that I both have heard in Christian preaching and some I have read in commentaries that move so swiftly over those words. And what I've heard in good preaching, I think, is that, well, Jesus is at that point quoting the Psalms, which he is. Those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a direct lifting from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that psalm goes this way, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so distant from my groaning? Why do I cry and you do not hear? Yet the Lord is holy and is enthroned upon the praises of Israel. He who puts his trust, our fathers put their trust in you, and he who puts their trust in you will not be put to shame. They trusted in you and you delivered them. That is Psalm 22. And in certain people's telling of Mark and Matthew, of the Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sambhaktani, is that they are saying that Jesus, in that moment of saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is really just doing nothing more than quoting that entire psalm so that what Jesus is really saying, even as he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the Psalm 22, so that what he's really saying is that though I am saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Though that put that trust in you will be delivered. It's a statement of faith that Jesus is saying, that I trust in you, you will deliver me, because he's quoting Psalm 22. He is quoting Psalm 22, but I just think that that is an extremely forced reading of the text. I don't think that we can use that, what's called intertextual method, to make Jesus say something completely opposite than what he's saying. There was a cry on the cross when Jesus felt utterly bereft, utterly forsaken by God, when the heavens themselves turned away. And I don't want to shave off the sharp edge of the spear. I don't want to file down the sharpness of the thorns. I don't want to somehow blunt the edges of the nails that went into his hand. What occurs at the cross is not something for us 
to quickly move past or mitigate and say, well, he's going to rise in three days. It is for us to fully meditate and understand the cost and what exactly occurred at the crucifixion of the Son of God. It is not for us to make light or to say that it's not really as bad as it seems. It is for us to understand that it is a tragedy that's even worse than anything could ever imagine. And in so doing, something else appears in the realm of our Christian consciousness. And it goes something like this. Do you ever struggle with something in your life that's bad? I don't mean something stupid or silly, light. I mean something's bad. And you think, this is just awful, and I don't know how I'm going to get through it. And then you hear about a friend or somebody that you know or somebody in our church. And they just, they're going through something devastatingly far worse. And it puts what you're going through in perspective. This is what the cross of Christ was always meant to do. And no matter whatever loss or pain or humiliation, whatever kind of ignominy or just being passed over, feelings of powerlessness I've ever experienced in my life, no matter whatever aspersions of suspicion and disdain and scorn and people not liking me I've ever experienced, no matter what kind of pain I've ever felt at being separated from those that I love, these are not to be compared with what Christ endured upon the cross, seen with protective boundary of the Holy Saturday, seen Good Friday standing on its own before Easter Sunday. It is for us even to take it much larger and to say, and to stand upon firm Christian conviction that the events that have occurred, even in our recent history, as horrific, as grotesque, as maddening as they are, tsunamis, earthquakes, and a catastrophic loss of life, that these are not the worst events that have occurred in history. The worst thing that has ever happened in all of human history ever recorded is when the innocent Son of God and God Himself was judged by us, scorned by us, betrayed by us, turned away by us, crucified and killed and left to die alone. The Son of God and God Himself trampled by the very creation that he created. And so with your tragedies in mind, we have never hit the bottom. Even with the some tragedies of all the world, we do not hit bottom. At the cross of Christ, we hit bottom. And if we allow Good Friday to stand in all that it is, in all of its sorrow and tragedy, we feel the bottom there firm. And it is almost like an Archimedean point upon which God uses as a fulcrum and lever, sinking to the absolute worst point, the lowest point of all humanity, by which he can redeem and lift up all the sorrows, the sin, and the suffering. At the lowest point, he can lift all that we have endured, all that the world has endured, all that the world has gone through, and he can redeem it all if we allow Good Friday to stand on its own. I'll move very quickly to the other two. And for the sake of time, I'll, I'll just save you the flipping. The view from Matthew and Mark is the view of Good Friday. The view from the book of John is an absolutely different picture. 
And it is the picture from Resurrection Sunday. It is the Easter picture. It is looking back at the cross, looking at Easter. So these two things, we need these, both these pictures are not one against the other or one better than the other. The picture that we have from Mark and Matthew is then now put alongside the picture that we have from John. And the picture from John is one that when you look, if you do the same thing according to the Gospel of John, and if you were to look at the Gospel of John, and if you were to look at the last red letters before the resurrection account in the book of John, this, you, and you guys, if you just want, you guys can flip there if you like. Does anybody know, actually, just off the top of their heads, what are the last words of Jesus on the cross before the resurrection according to the John's Gospel? Yeah, that's right. It is finished. It is the looking and knowing confidently. These, and again, I, don't, I want to put these two pictures together. It is the confident looking of knowing exactly what was occurring and exactly, exactly what he was doing when he was suffering and dying upon the cross. It is finished. Is It is almost looking at these words in, in a way that completely re-understands and, and it's, in a sense, almost reinvents the meaning of that Good Friday message. I don't know if you guys, you guys know this. There's, there's, a, there's a form of wordplay called uh, paraprosdokian. Does anybody know what that is? That's a big, highfalutin term, paraprosdokian. And it's a kind of, it's a technical term, actually, for kind of a wordplay, where the end of the sentence completely changes the beginning part of the sentence. And so a paraprosdokian, I'll just give you an example. A paraprosdokian is this, is, if someone were to say to you, if you are not part of the solution, you're part of the precipitate. Okay, that's a geeky, that's a geeky paraprosdokian. But the end changes the beginning. Do you understand what it was getting at? This Mitch Hedberg, who's kind of a, the master of, of paraprosdokian, said things like, I haven't slept for 10 days, because that would be too long. The end changes the beginning. It's the classic, is Henny Youngman's, Take My Wife, Please. You reinterpret the beginning of what was said at the end. The it is finished of John is to be able to look at what happened at Good Friday not from the lens of Good Friday alone. It is to look at it from the other perspective, the Easter Sunday perspective, that God in his sovereign authority sent Jesus upon a mission which he completed, which he finished. And I, I, just, and I just want to say this because I've spoken so much about things like apocalyptic literature where we don't take things literally. This we take literally. There, there is an amazing amount of kind of uh, contortions that people do in the academy to kind of take the crucifixion literally and somehow make the resurrection something that was a mythology or something that didn't really occur, and yet it is never what the Bible does. In that great sermon that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, he treats it in the same exact breath. This Jesus whom you crucified and killed, God raised. And why is it that we can believe more in the power of man to kill the Son of God than the power of God to raise him? It is in the same fashion. It is a literal crucifixion and a literal resurrection which God by miraculous power restarts all of humanity. And the reason why I put it in that much larger frame, when we say, and we quote these words from Jesus from the book of John, it is finished. John 
is not just saying, as he recounts these words from Jesus, Jesus is not just saying, my mission, my three-year ministry, or my 33-year life, it is finished. He means it is finished. What God began in Genesis, it is finished. You want to, This is an amazing thing. Upon the Easter Sunday, upon the Easter Sunday, and we're going to celebrate just in a few weeks, upon Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the tomb. The setting of that tomb, do you guys all know it from the Gospels? What was the setting of that tomb that Jesus rose from? It was, it was a grave given by Joseph of Arimathea. But do you know the, the, the kind of the setting? Do you know what that was, where the tomb was? Do you guys recount from the Gospels? It was a garden. It was not by chance. You can look at it in the, in the Gospel accounts. It's not by chance. It is a garden like Eden. And so what Holy Saturday is about is that as the first Adam was taken from the dust of the earth and God breathed life into him and made him a living being. The second Adam now is interred in the dust and in the dirt of the ground, ready to become the second Adam and the rebirth of all new recreation. And it must, it had to be a miracle. It had to be the reversal of death. It had to be the final triumph over the very worst of the fall, which is death itself. When Jesus was saying, it is finished, Jesus was saying, the entire old age, it is finished. And now, behold, I make all things new. There is a new creation emerging, a new creation happening. As Jesus now, as the second Adam, the recreation of all humanity, of which we are heirs. As he is raised, and God's spirit breathes into him, the new life, of which those that live in him never die. Holy Saturday, then, is our in-between time. Holy Saturday is our time in which there is a gap between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And the reason why that is of such great importance for us is because in that stretch of time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, between the cross and the resurrection, is there room God has made for us that we live the majority of our lives. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do not live the bulk of my existence in the untrammeled delight of Resurrection Sunday. I don't. I don't live my life in just every day of just the thrill and the power of recreated resurrection life. I don't live my life there. And I don't live the bulk of my life in the sorrows and the, the com- confusion of being desolate and desperate of, the, in, of Good Friday either. The majority of my life takes place in this in-between moments where I am between my crosses and my resurrections, my small defeats and my small successes, my times of trial and my times of coming out of those trials. I live most of my time there And this Holy Saturday is to remind me that Jesus has chosen to come and spend time with me in that grave, in that place of waiting. And he has blessed that waiting time. The last gospel we did not look at is from Luke's account. If Matthew and Mark's picture is from the Good Friday, 
and the freakishness of the cross in and of itself. And John's view is from the confidence view of the glory of resurrection. What is Luke's view of Easter, of Good Friday through Easter? And the last words in red in Luke's account, before, it, uh, just reading before the resurrection, the last words in red, if you have your red letter editions, some of you are looking there now and, and some of you have found it. They're each different, these different accounts, and we've got to hold them all together. You know what the last words, in, in, in according to Luke, the last words of Jesus on the cross? Somebody want to just say them for us as we just complete our Bible study? Somebody just want to say, what, in, accordance, in according to Luke's gospel, what are the last words of Jesus on the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is neither the confident, it is finished. Though that is part of Jesus' testimony too. Neither is it the cry of dereliction on the cross of, why have you forsaken me? It is the in-between that falls on Holy Saturday. Father, into your hands I surrender. I commit I am not the master of my destiny, says the Son to the Father. I cannot raise myself from the grave. I need to be rescued. And I commit my spirit that you will, in your time, rescue me. We hate to wait. And no more, I, mean, I just talked last week about this book called Faster. How we hate waiting. How we hate the powerlessness, the helplessness of having somebody else by their authority impose their time upon us so that we have to be dependent. How we hate that. And if, if I quote James Gleick, that extremely erudite philosopher, sociologist in the book Faster, I'll quote from the other side of pop culture, one of my favorite quotes from Prince's Bride, Inigo Montoya. I hate waiting. Me too. I hate waiting. So much so that we have an entire theology of what Jesus did on Holy Saturday. And it's in, it's in part of our creeds in the Westminster Confession. And if, a few months back, I tried to show as closely as I could biblically that I don't believe that Jesus used that time on Saturday to do what was called the harrowing of hell. I don't think that that is what occurs. But for us, and especially in our modern West, Western mindset, we cannot imagine that God would have had Jesus waste time in this most important event. We believe that if something happened on Friday, something happened Sunday, something must have happened on Saturday. And we think God is texting Jesus in the grave. Okay, now get, get busy. Do what you've got to keep on doing. And faith stretched across time means to wait. So much so that waiting and having faith is almost synonymous Almost synonymous in the Bible. Waiting is just faith stretched across time so that we wait and we have this cross and this resurrection which cradles our entire existence so that through every single trial of which it is not for me to decide how long I suffer, it is not for me to decide when God's going to deliver me, that I can wait and commit my spirit to my Father in faith knowing that if there was a cross, there is going to be a resurrection. He is going to rescue me in His time. 
and part of what I do in the meantime in Ephesians talk to redeem this time is to exercise my faith constructively in belief before the Lord and join Jesus, as it says in the book of Hebrews, that even he had to learn obedience through his suffering. There was a divine, divine lesson that God had for the Son of God to learn as he waited for the resurrection. And it is where you and I spend most of our existence. Suffering our trials and yet confident of the future deliverance of the Lord. I have to finish with an application or else it makes no sense what I did. As we look into these next series and controversy series, as we approach issues like abortion and homosexuality and war in the Middle East, most of the heresies that the church has gone through has because they have either just listened to the cross or just listened to the resurrection and there is no room for a holy Saturday that holds these two intention. And what I mean by that is that I do not appreciate it when Christians and Christian preachers talk the way they do in just the glory of the resurrection and say to people in their suffering and in their pain, just you just gotta trust God, hallelujah, praise the Lord, and just, just get over it. I mean, you know, there's suffering, but, but you know, God's the king in those glib and smug terms. And yes, they've held on to Easter Sunday resurrection of the Gospel of John's witness, but they've completely lost the compassion of Mark and Matthew's witness. And then there's been the other that side completely and wallow in the confusion that go into issues like abortion and homosexuality and say, well, I'm just as confused about what God wants or what God will do or whether God will do anything. I'm just as confused as you are. And so I join you there. And it is the confident, strong, mature man and woman of faith, which you all are being grown to be, that go fully into all the crosses that people bear in hospitals, in their confusions, and their questions of sexual orientation, of losses of life, and who share with them, as Jesus did, in their compassion, and cry out to God with them in the same desperation, and yet holding intention, even as I join with you, this person in suffering. I know that in time, his time, as we are patient and look to him, as sure there was an Easter morning, as sure that God raised the Son from the dead, there is nothing God cannot do. Let us wait together in hope, in faith. Let that be my love. Some theologians call that majesty and mercy. Let's pray. These four witnesses... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What would we have done without any of them? Something critical would have been dropped did we not have four gospel witnesses to these accounts. Something of compassion or something of glory would have been lost. And something of the two mingled together. Majesty and mercy. God means for us to be a mature, wide, full people that can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and can do them pull off the miracle 
of enter into people's weeping with compassionate empathy and bring to them rejoicing of the hope of the resurrection and God's final judgment on death itself and the triumph over the cross and the grave which he so lovingly shares with all of us. So I pray for both, Lord Jesus, even in the spirit of Paul, that we might know the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering. May we not be so different from you, Jesus, a people who do not know pain and people who do not know joy, a people who have somehow blunted our image of God into some kind of tasteless, insipid existence. May we know the richness of being quick to cry and quick to laugh. I, we believe, Jesus, that is the way you were. A son of God, carpenter from Nazareth, quick to cry, quick to laugh, knowing the fullness and being all things to all men. That by the power of your gospel, some may be one. Jesus, would you send us out into this world as people filled with compassion and mercy and filled with power and your glory. May these things so combine in us as to, in the end, give you glory. For we pray them all in Jesus' name. Amen.